0: Welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Matthew, and I hope through this message you find truth, encouragement, and that it helps you grow as a disciple of Christ. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redemption. We're kicking off our Christmas series entitled, His Name Shall Be Called. This series is based on a famous prophecy written by the prophet Isaiah long before Jesus was born unto this earth. You've probably heard these words. You've seen them on a coffee mug or around Hobby Lobby or something like that. Let me read them to you. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace." Now, they are absolutely beautiful words, and the entire subject of Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 9 is what I will teach on on December 22nd. We're going to look at these, uh, this verse more in context of the entire prophecy. But what we're going to do over the next four weeks is learn more deeply what these names mean. In fact, we have kind of a three-pronged approach to the names over the next four weeks. And that's this. What does the name mean? How did Jesus fulfill the name? And why is the name important today for us? As it says in the passage, to us, to us, a child was born, to us, a son was given. So these names were supposed to have meaning. Of course, names are important. We know that. We name our children what we name our children, typically for some kind of reason, a good reason. Hopefully, we name them after people we admire, we name them after people in our past, or we name them something that we think is cool or will make them unique as they're growing up. There's, of course, power in names. But even more so, in the scriptural context of Isaiah 9, his name shall be called is essential. Now, I'm not going to get into all of this this morning. I'll save some of it for the night of the 22nd. But the phrase, his name shall be called, could also be translated like this. His mission shall be. See, a name was just not a name. You don't just call someone a name. That person has a calling. And so when God called Abraham, he didn't just call Abraham, Abraham, his whole mission shifted. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. We see it with Abraham. We see it with Moses. We see it with Jacob when his name is changed to Israel. It's all throughout. And we even kind of have this into our own modern language when we say, well, that person, they have a calling on their life. Well, the calling is not just what we call them. The calling is what's underneath. It's the mission. And so what we see here in Isaiah chapter 9 was a prophecy about not just the name of Jesus, but the mission of Christ locked up into four names four names, four names that we can read over or that we can sing about, uh, that we can see again on mugs or uh, on, on journals or whatever it might be. And we think these are pretty, they're beautiful, but what do they mean? Why did Isaiah use these names to um, prophesy about the coming Savior and Messiah? And what are they supposed to mean for us today? So this is our quest with this thesis, I guess, underneath. That the more we know someone, the more we can love them. The more we know someone, the more we can love them. Now, this is, by the way, is sometimes contrary to um, the way we interact with people. Sometimes the more we get to know someone, the less we love them. But the beauty of the gospel is the more Christ knows us, the more he loves us. That his knowing us didn't stop him from loving us. And the same is true. And we can learn something new about Jesus because we understand these names better. So here's what I can not do. I can't teach a 30-minute sermon just on the words, wonderful counselor. I'm gonna have to move around to other scriptures. Uh, to help prove my point. So throughout this series, we'll be hopping around um, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, both that which came before the prophecy and that which came after the prophecy, and then even that which came after Jesus ascended up into heaven, so that we have a full picture of the doctrine of what does it mean that Jesus' name was called, in our case today, Wonderful Counselor. So let me tell you from the beginning what Wonderful Counselor doesn't mean. Wonderful counselor does not mean Jesus is my very good therapist. It's not what it means. In fact, both understandings of that phrase would be wrong, both in the wonderful and in the counselor part. In fact, wonderful is not even a descriptive word. It's not an adjective. It's a noun in its original context. And so wonderful is not even describing counselor. And so if someone's taught, you will remember Jesus is a really good, delightful counselor. It's true, but you wouldn't actually derive that doctrine from this verse. Wonderful is not describing counselor. Some translations actually have a comma between wonderful and counselor, as if to say it's five names instead of four. For our purposes today, we're just going to combine them. But we do have to look at each word individually if we're going to understand what it actually means wonderful, and counselor. That's the original intent of the language. The word wonderful is Pele. Some of you are old enough to remember an incredible soccer player named Pele. I don't know if there's a connection there or not, but he was really good at soccer, the best ever. And so even in this word Pele in its original context, and then how it's been used later, it speaks of wonder, incredibleness, amazingness. So what does this word mean? Wonderful Pele in its original word. Well, there's another place in the Old Testament that we get to see this word, and it helps us understand it better. That place is in Judges chapter 13. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, the Judges, this was hundreds of years prior to the prophecy that we read in Isaiah. Uh, The Judges were a group of people who would lead Israel. Well, they were individuals, but Collectively, they were a group of people, but they were individual judges who would oversee Israel with less political authority than a king and less spiritual authority than a prophet, um, but a combination of those two things. That was a judge. And so the judges became legendary, and there are stories of the, the feats and, uh, and how incredible they were. But there was one judge in particular who's known by people, whether they're Christians or not Christians, most people have heard of this particular judge. And we hear the story of his birth in Judges chapter 13. And what happens is an angel of the Lord appears to the mother. See if this story seems familiar at all an angel appears to the mother and tells the mother that she's going to bear a child with supernatural strength whose strength and power will save his people. Sound familiar? And then the woman, the the mom, runs to her husband and says, I'm going to have a baby. Don't worry, it's yours. She doesn't say that part. I put that in there just to clarify. I'm going to have a baby. And the Dad says, well, how do you know? And she says, the angel told me. And then the father goes, well, hold on. He didn't tell me. And so he goes to God. He says, hey, can you send that angel back? And God's like, all right. So the angel comes back. And then the angel tells the dad. And he's like, OK, we're in. This sounds good. And then he says this in verse 12 of Judges 13. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, get this, what is to be the child's manner of life? Get this phrase: "And what is his mission? What is his mission? If his name shall be called can be translated, what is his mission? It is true here that what is his mission could also be translated, and what should we call him? In other words, what is this kid? What's he going to be all about? Some of you have already guessed whose birth of this is that we're talking about. It was a judge whose name was Samson who would have supernatural strength and power to deliver the people of Israel, who was told to live a life, um, a very specific type of life. You can almost look at it and say like a perfect life. And as he lived the perfect life, he would have the power. But then when he failed to live the perfect life, he would lose the power. But then God would come upon him one more time to save his people through supernatural strength. This is the story of Samson's birth. After the angel answers the question on what the mission is supposed to be, we see a couple more little um, dialogue between the, the parents and the angel. Jumping down to verse 17, we see this. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, hey, what's your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. In other words, what should we call you? Get this. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful, seeing it is pele, the same word used here. Now, we know, because of the writer of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater than the angels. We know that we're not to worship angels. What happens next after this, after they hear this, is Manoah and his wife begin to worship the angel of the Lord. They build an altar, and they put sacrifices on it. It actually says that the angel of the Lord disappears into the fire and ascends up into heaven. And then afterwards, they're debating whether or not they're going to listen to him. And the wife says, did you see what just happened? We're listening to that dude's advice. So they decide that they're going to follow the angel of the Lord's advice. Now, taking all that we know about scripture and this phrase, the angel of the Lord, what are we seeing here? Doctrinally, this is known as a Christophany. It's a time when a pre-incarnate Christ makes an appearance on earth. And the pre-incarnate Christ shows up and he says, my name's Wonderful. The same name that the prophet Isaiah is gonna call him a couple hundred years later. And he's gonna call his name Wonderful in the context of a story where he's talking about the supernatural birth of a child whose strength, if he lives a perfect life, will deliver people into freedom. So the angel of the Lord says, my name is wonderful. He disappears, and they worship, and they obey, and they follow him, and they commit to do what he says. A couple hundred years later, Isaiah says, he is wonderful. And of course, years, years, years after that, Jesus actually is born and he shows up on earth. And what does he do? What is the words that's described? Wonders. He performs wonders. And so all throughout Jesus's life on earth, the wonderful one performs Wonders. There were stories, jumping back to the previous story, where Samson would accomplish things with his strength, and you would say, how did he do that? You read the story, and it reads like a, uh, like a Hollywood movie. In fact, Hollywood made a movie recently about Samson and his strength. And you read it, and you go, how did he do that? But then after Jesus is born, And after he grows up and he is the the one who performs wonders, supernatural strength and power, his disciples are always going, whoa, how? How did he do that? And even when the disciples don't say it, those of us who are reading it go, wait, how? How did he do that? Like one time, he feeds 5,000 people. We believe this to be a literal story. He feeds 5,000 people with a small amount of bread and fish. And though we believe it to be a literal story, it's actually a spiritual analogy of how Jesus's doctrine was enough for all of us. And he feeds the 5,000 and his disciples go, wait, how did he do that? And then later, he's on on the sea and the disciples are freaking out and the seas are raging, and the wonderful one stands up, and he says, peace, be still. And they go, whoa, even creation listens to him. How did he do that? We believe that to be a literal story. All these stories we believe to be literal, but they have spiritual meanings. And in that one, he's reminding us that when life is crazy and it feels like the storm is coming in to take us out, he's still in control, the wonderful one has the power. Another story, Jesus sees, well, in a couple different stories, one, a, a young child, another one, a grown man, dead. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and he raises the dead to life. And the disciples go, how did he do that? As a reminder to us of our spiritual state apart from Christ dead in sin, but the wonderful one can bring even the most dead of us back to life spiritually. There's another one too. This is actually his first wonder. He's at a wedding and they get to the end and all of the wine is gone and they show up and they say, "Uh, hey, Jesus, all the wine's gone and I'm going to be really embarrassed. And Jesus' mom is like, hey, he can handle it. He's wonderful. Jesus is like, I'm not quite ready for this. Mom, just calm down. And She goes, just do what he says. He's like, whatever. So that's a very abbreviated version of the story. And so he instructs them, and then he turns water into wine at the end of the wedding. And everyone's like, how did he do that? And it's a picture for us that one day, those of us who are in Christ and are at the wedding with him will celebrate his goodness forever, which is good news for us. Every wonder that Jesus did had power in the moment and also foreshadowed something good for us right here. And at the end of the story of Jesus's life here on this earth, the religious leaders are standing around and they say, okay, this one who's doing the wonders, he's got to go. And so it was his wonderfulness that even drove the religious leaders to bring him to his death. But it was his wonderfulness that caused them to rise from the grave three days later, and then 40 days later to ascend into heaven. And you could have thought, oh no, the wonder is gone. Ah, but then he sends his Holy Spirit a few days after that. And all throughout the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church and the Holy Spirit moving, uses this phrase, signs and wonders. And so the wonder was before Jesus came around, the wonder was there when the prophet Isaiah wrote. The wonder was there when Jesus was on earth. The wonder brought Jesus to his death. And the wonder still exists to this day in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is the wonder? What does it mean that Jesus is wonderful? It means that he has supernatural power over Everything. Why is this important to you? Because he has supernatural power and he has provided it to his followers and his church through his Holy Spirit. What does it mean that Jesus is wonderful? It means that there is no situation that he is not strong enough to defeat. It means that there is no enemy that can oppose him and win. Why is it important for you? Because the power of God, what did the text say? was given to us. To us, a son is given. To us, a child is born. And what is his mission? To bring wonder, supernatural power into the world and into his followers. Now, if you're feeling down, if you're feeling weak, there's a fake way to go about getting strength then there's a real way. You look at the wonderful one and you see his strength for you. You see how the strength of his Holy Spirit now resides in you. And how is it, by the way, that the strength of the wonderful one now resides in you? Because he was willing to go to the cross where all of his strength was poured out, taken away where he refused to exercise his wonder so that you and I could live in the wonder. This is what we call the gospel, Jesus becoming weak so that we could become strong. But then after he rose from the grave, there's no mystery anymore now. The wonder is alive. The wonder is active. The wonder is as wonderful today as it has ever been, which means that both the church and the individual Christians live in the power of God's wonder. So friend, you don't have to walk around feeling powerless. You don't have to walk around afraid of the enemy. You don't have to walk around thinking that the impossible can't become possible. The wonder of God is for you. Christmas gave that to you. He is wonderful counselor. Let's understand the other half of this phrase, the other half of this word, counselor. Now, counselor is a word that we certainly understand uh, today. We have a, this idea of it, a therapist, a counselor, somebody who listens to us and uh, gives advice, and we vent to, or, or however that might work. And they help us through problems. I think the word counselor, uh, though, in our modern understanding of it, is slightly too weak. This might offend some of you. But uh, if we were going to retranslate this, we might say, Jesus is wonderful leader. He is wonderful coach. He is wonderful consultant. He is wonderful advisor. Like there's a, it's a solution oriented word. It's not just a, I, um, I speak and you Listen. It's nice, he does that for us, but the word has more of a action orientation, a solution orientation. Jesus is wonderful, he provides supernatural power and he is counselor, he provides supernatural guidance or wisdom, leadership over our lives. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Once Jesus shows up on the scene, There's four different ways we see this. Let me walk you through them. The first is this. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. This was from early on in his life. We just got done with an eight-week series on wisdom. If you miss it, you can catch it on podcast or online. We talked all about wisdom and how to walk in wisdom. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. Jesus is the fullness of wisdom. And from an early age, from a human perspective, he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. I had this very interesting interaction with a monk, former monk, the other day. I'll tell you this story more in full at another time. But it was interesting hearing the story of this guy who was a monk and very wise. And at the beginning of this conversation, he was grilling me with doctrinal questions. And I was like, this is fun. And this dude is smart. Later, I found out he was a monk. He spent a season of his life, life, of course, Isolated, meditating, learning, growing. But he's not there now. And see, Jesus as wisdom is not a monk in a monastery just meditating. He is full wisdom. He has all of the wisdom. But good for us, Jesus didn't just keep up his wisdom and hide out where other people would have to go through this massive journey to come find him. Now, the second thing, And we see this. He's not just wisdom embodied. He was also teacher. And so it said that Jesus taught with an authority that nobody else had ever taught with. He could teach the law unlike anyone had ever taught the law because he wasn't just teaching the law. He was the fulfillment of the law. He could talk about how the world worked, not just because he had seen it or studied it, but because he made it. could teach principles on life because he was the one who had wired us on how to best live. And so when Jesus taught, he taught with authority, with leadership, with a sense that no one else could touch. And when people would hear his teaching, they would go away and they would say, wow, never heard that before. And it would move them, not just intellectually, but here. And so he's not just wisdom embodied. He was also teacher. He was a wise teacher. Some of us probably had professors in college or uh, we've seen other teachers who, they're great teachers and they are very wise, but there's a separation from them in reality. They've forgotten. It's like the old political phrase when they say, oh, these politicians, they don't even know the cost of a gallon of milk, right? Like there's a separation normal people. Well, Jesus was wise teacher, but the writer of Hebrews teaches us this, that he went through everything we've gone through so as to relate to us in every way. That Jesus is not just wise teacher who teaches from stage and is disconnected from the people, from us. Jesus walked through what we walked through, so that he could relate to us in every way. It means that Jesus understands your depression. He understands your sadness. He understands your anger problem. He understands your hurt. He understands your abandonment. He understands loneliness. He understands love. He understands losing someone close. He understands a season of drought because he walked on earth as a human because he faced the crushing defeat of the cross. And so he's not just wise teacher. He's a wise teacher who can empathize and relate to us in every way. And fourthly, in Luke chapter four, one of my favorite verses, it says that as Jesus came, he came to reveal the secret, the secrets of the human heart. I love this verse. It's as if Jesus came and what he came to do was to dig down that which you and I are so good at pushing down. And Jesus came to reveal the secrets of men's hearts. One way we see this happening, one time he's standing at a well and a woman comes out and and she approaches Jesus, and he's there by himself because he sent his disciples on a little expedition. He's there, and he begins to have this conversation with this uh, this woman, This uh, what culture and, and kind of the teaching goes, was a hurting woman who was kind of on the outside of society. And Jesus comes and engages in this conversation with her, this doctrinal conversation, this conversation about her life, which is a reminder to us that when we engage in people, particularly in evangelism, um, that we care about the whole human being. All of them and what's going on inside, not just conveying our truth. And so Jesus has this conversation with this woman and what she says at the end is, he knew everything about me. He cut to the depths of my heart. He knew everything. There's a famous verse of scripture that says the truth will set you free. And that does mean that factual truth will set you free from inaccuracy. But I believe what it also means is that when we allow truth to be released, when we allow ourselves to take that which is deep down and to release it to God, that something sets free inside of us. You know this to be true because you've had a moment where you were carrying a secret and the moment you let the truth out, what happened? You felt free. This verse in Luke, and this fourth way that Jesus is counselor, is that he knows us intimately. That he goes down to the core of who we are. That we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to hide our fears. We don't have to hide our faults. We don't have to hide our insecurities. We don't have to live unknown. And and not only does Jesus come uh, to us in that way, not only does he know us in that way, but when we understand the purpose both of godly marriage and of the church family and community, when we understand that to its full extent, it also means that we're supposed to be known by others in that way. But what has happened? Many of us who have exposed ourselves in that way have been hurt as a result of that. And so what we do is we close up. But Jesus as counselor means that he wants to dig down to the depths of your heart and the depths of your soul, and he wants to pull out all of that that you've repressed and that you have put into your past, and he wants to set it free. He doesn't want you living with the guilt and the shame of the past. He doesn't want the enemy reminding you, no, you can't because you once. He wants you free. And so he knows you intimately and he digs it out if we let him. That's what it means that he's counselor. It means that the wise teacher relator wants to reveal what's going on inside and let it out. And the enemy wants you not to know Jesus as counselor. Counselor. Because he wants you living in the chain or the bondage of all of that stuff. Because the enemy knows the power of a Christian who's been set free in that way. Because the power of that Christian is, you can't hold those things against me. Now, when you combine these things, wonderful counselor, you see the perfect mix of faith and relationship—the perfect mix of power and practicality. You see, the perfect mix of the uh, of Jesus, the the wonder one who's who's performing miracle, and also Jesus, the wonder one who is intimate and personal. What Christmas gave to you was a supernatural provider of power and direction for your life. Christmas delivered that to you in the form of a baby. So what does that mean? It means the power of the wonder now resides in you, Christian. So believe in the miracle. It means that the guidance and the wisdom and the relatableness of Jesus wants to pull it all out and set you free, friend. Do you know Jesus in that way? Isaiah wanted you to know Jesus in that way years before he was ever born. Isaiah didn't want you to just think of Jesus as a good therapist. Isaiah didn't want you to just say, oh, his name is Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah wanted you to know that the mission of the Savior King was to provide you power and guidance for your life. That was Christ's mission for you wonderful counselor one down three to go thanks for joining us if you enjoyed this message i want to encourage you to click the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing and if you haven't already we would love for you to join us for one of our services sunday 10 a.m in the levis commons movie theater i would also like to invite you to our christmas eve service at the bar for more information, you can visit experienceredemption.com forward slash The Barn. Have a great week.